Welcome to the Kyperian Commentary Podcast. This is episode 81. I'm Dustin Messer, and I am joined by my friend, Yuri Brito. Yuri, how are you? Dustin, fantastic. Good to talk to you, my friend. Good to talk with you, too. The impetus behind our conversation was another podcast that you did uh, in which you talked about some of the research you're doing at Reform Seminary. I wrote down three points from that conversation in which you sort of crystallized your dissertation. And I don't want to take words out of your mouth, but the words I wrote down after listening to that were learning, leisure, and friendship. And it's got me thinking, what should be sort of hallmarks of ministry? Now, those three things for you, you were talking about sustaining in ministry. But it got me thinking about what are kind of big takeaway things themes in one's ministry. So I want to ask you a couple questions about that. But before I do, can you just tell us a little bit about your research at RTS and what you're learning? Yeah, man. It's been a really interesting process and journey, mainly because it has crystallized a lot of things for me. It made them rather concrete. I have been reading a variety of historical figures in preparation for my writing. And um, not only Calvin's company of pastors, but also Baxter later on, and then back in history to Augustine, and then vacillating back and forth to Bonhoeffer. All these topics and of individuals that I've looked into have sort of provided a, a clear framework for how to think about pastoral theology. They all had their unique personalities and nuances, of course, but there were three themes that came up again and again and again. And these themes center around particular rituals that a lot of modern pastors don't give much attention. And I thought, why was this such a prevalent way of thinking, you know, some hundred years ago, a thousand plus years ago, but it's no longer part of the conversation in pastoral theology today. And there is a kind of resurgence of pastoral theology thinking which is great, some of it in the more technical level, but some of it really focusing on the, the concreteness of pastoral ministry. And somebody that you and I admire quite a bit on this issue, Eugene Peterson, has is really, I think, a terrific voice. And I don't care how you feel about the message. Uh, Eugene Peterson is much greater than that. And I think his pastoral work has been a very clear way of embodying a lot of what church history has yeah. shared with us. And so the three themes that, as you mentioned, have been the themes of friendship, which is something that in modern pastoral uh, theology and thinking, if friendship takes almost a sort of secondary place to the more significant things, which are preparation of sermons, just the sermonizing process altogether, the managerial dimension of pastoral ministry, the administrative uh, a more common one, which was uh, sort of promoted by uh, Dr. Greenleaf as the, the servant leadership model. But a lot of these models fail to deal with the, the kinds of rituals that stimulate pastors for long-term ministries. And so the themes that I found were not practiced by pastors. And as a result, a lot of the pastors who left very early on had this repetitive theme in their lives, and that is that they had no friends. And the pastors that endured long-term ministries with no friends left the ministry exhausted, frustrated, friendless, and wishing they could do a, a do-over, which obviously they, they couldn't. And so the, the, that was the friendship. And then the other part of it was 
in the area of learning, a lot of pastors tend to come out of seminary and borrow as much of that material as possible. And that kind of provides a certain level of stamina and, and vigor for a certain time. And then they kind of run out of material and they lack the sort of freshness of insight and theological uh, grounding to study. So in other words, they've learned a lot of material, but they haven't learned how to study, how to read, how to improve in certain areas. And then the last part, which I think is probably the most pertinent for pastoral ministry, which is completely set aside because we have li we live in a, a pastoral culture where it's cool and it's grandiose for your reputation to overwork. And so for a pastor to say he's busy, it's kind of a way of saying, you know, synonymously, I am a good pastor. And that's something that Eugene Peterson really rips apart in some of his writings. And um, the, the concept of busyness has been associated with the consistent, the, the faithful pastor. That's a good pastor there. He rarely sees his families at night because he's always at the office fighting for the cause of the faith, writing apologetics book or whatever. And I want to turn that upside down and say, no, no, that's a sign of, of an unfaithful pastor, a pastor who's not doing his, who's not being faithful to his call, which is to find rest in Jesus, find rest from his labors, find Sabbath rest as a way of uh, reclaiming his soul and restoring his soul so he can be a more faithful pastor. But, so those are three kind of categories. And I know that we could probably, there's probably 10, 15 other things also, but I really focus on these three because I think they were prevalent in the history of other pastors throughout uh, in, in, in the church history, but also because I think it really resonates with, um, with my own life. It, it was helpful for me just to hear those three things. Not that I hadn't thought about them before, but I hadn't thought about them strung together and specifically connected. You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said the twin psychological ailment of our age are two things. And I'm going to say these two words and you, of course, named three things, but I think these two words are the flip side or maybe the, the, the opposite of what you said. He said, haste and superficiality. Now, haste, we could say, is maybe the opposite of leisure, right? Haste leads to superficiality. If you're always busy, if you're always, you know, spreading the mayonnaise so thin to get all the fat and none of the flavor... You will, of course, be kind of a vapid, shallow, uh, superficial person. And that leads to the opposite of friendship, mm -hmm. right? Isolation, because you're never known. And so I heard you name those three things. It was helpful for me because it was just like, you know, if pastoral ministry is a journey in a car, those three things aren't really the destination exactly, but they are the gas in the tank. And I know you're, you're working with some of the research from uh, the resilient ministry people, Tasha Chapman, others who say, you know, this this call to ministry um, is not a sprint. It's a marathon. So that was helpful to me. I wanted to ask you, though, if learning, leisure, friendship, and I think you're exactly right. Those three things are the gas in the tank. If that's the gas, I wonder if you could think, I think you've been an ordained 11, 12 years, am I right, right. about that? Yep. I'm in my 12th year. In your 12th year. Think about 
the destination. What have been kind of the markers or maybe themes of your ministry in these 12 years? Mm, that's a great question. I think uh, there is always a, a learning curve, of course. There are things that um, I wish I had not said in the early days. Those mistakes were really instrumental in shaping my pastoral ministry. And um, the, uh, the ability to establish yourself in a community as a pastor, I've discovered is something that's not a, it's not a welcomed sort of virtue in pastoral ministry. I think a lot of pastors are content in viewing themselves as isolated from the people. And I know, being the Reformed tradition for a very long time, that that is seen as a, as a virtue sometimes, because when the pastor is, the pastor is the, the resident scholar, and it's a part of the scholarship of a pastor to not be around people, because by nature, the scholar is separated from the people. And one of the things that I, I remember very early on because of some of the influences I had, specifically John Frame, is that there is an existential side to pastoral ministry that would entail that I am not always, but as often as it is possible in the presence of my people, doing theology with my people, humbling myself before my people, all things that I have done poorly, but at least I am intentional about pursuing them, you know, and I, that, that's the first thing that comes to mind, that kind of establishing yourself in the community so that the pastor is viewed not as a, a distant person, a distant scholar, but a scholar that comes to the people and does everything within his, pos within his power and intellectual ability to communicate in a way that's understandable and communicate a faith that's transmittable too. And I think that's a real fault in a lot of modern pastoral theology in the, in my reformed faith. Well, you know, and look, I think it's helpful to name one of the problems that leads to this, which is you probably know the exact number, but the average stay of a pastorate in America right now is maybe like three years. So just from a practical standpoint, if you're an elder board, if you're a deacon board, if you're a vestry, whatever, and your experience is a different pastor every two to three years. Um, right. You can't have each pastor sort of, you know, wholly into the community, um, reshaping it to some degree and then leaving. And so I think that sort of, you know, vagabond nature of modern evangelicalism, where we really are just going from a different place, you know, each year. Um, creates a structure that is hostile to that sort of deep belonging that you talked about. I'm going to ask, this is a pop quiz for you. The answer is going to be somebody with whom you are friends. I was talking to someone this morning and yeah. I said, this person, so this is the quiz. I'm going to see if you can guess who I'm, who I'm thinking of. This person has published more words about theology than anybody since Karl Barth. I made this up. It's a total guess, but who do you think I'm talking about? So he has uttered more words on theology than published. since Karl Barth. He's published. I think this person, he's alive. 
he taught you. I'm giving you way too many. <laughs> almost more words about theology than anybody since Karl Barth. So who do you now? I've given you way too many hints. Who do you think I'm talking? Yeah, about? you're giving way too much. He, um, this is this is a man who is um, in his 70s, and I saw him a few months ago before COVID kind of hit in. And um, the interesting thing about John Frame is that. Uh, apart from his prolific nature, which is um, just something really remarkable. Every time I walk into his office, he's typing something new. And since he's retired, he's published probably, you know, a fourth of the books he published his entire career, which is pretty remarkable. He's publishing these popular books. He's not the easiest to dialogue with. And uh, he's actually admitted this. And if you read his biography, which is really, really his memoir, which really, really a beautiful sort of revelatory and um, almost a, not to use modern lingo, but I will. It's a vulnerable sort of portrait of who he is. He attempts to, in his life, he wished he had been the kind of person he promotes in his theological work. The kind of person who's deeply involved in the affairs of people, but because of a variety of things and personality and things like that, he's not that guy. But part of his mission is to convey a kind of theology that can be, Peterson would say, that can be eaten, <laughs> that can be devoured by the common person, by the common pastor. And I think his theology has probably done more for pastoral ministry than I think anybody else I think well, I've ever come across. I think across. this is the exact same thing. I bring him up for two reasons. One is this morning he has a article in the Gospel Coalition. I guess he just turned 80 in which he reflecting upon mm -hmm. his sort of life lessons he learned in ministry, one of which, well, it's really good. One of the things he says is uh, he's learned to not be too impressed with people, especially theologians. And uh, I thought that's a, a pretty good lesson. But I also bring him up because I knew he was important to you. It's been important to me, uh, albeit from a distance. Who else? You've mentioned Eugene Peterson. As you think about your ministry, you know, uh, in scripture, we are to follow just individual people as they are following Christ, right? This is a faith handed down to us. Who have been some influences that you think have shaped your ministry? That's a great question. There's a lot of, a lot of voices that keep, uh, speaking to, uh, my work. Uh, and one of them is actually a friend of mine, and uh, I, I, I think the people who probably have shaped a lot of my thinking pastorally are kind of the people that are probably not very, they're not, it's not inherent in them to be pastoral. And some of them are just very gifted theologians, but I think some of these voices have articulated a kind of need in pastoral theology that is uh, really needful. So there are a couple of voices, actually. Uh, I'll, I'll mention just one on Twitter, and I'm hoping to do some, uh, have an opportunity to do a little work with him. This guy's name is Brian Croft, and he does a lot of work in pastoral ministry. And what I find fascinating about Brian is that he pastors, from what I understand, a really kind of rural church with, yeah. uh, I know the number of his congregations, probably under 100 a small church and he has done pastoral work for many, many years. And he has done conferences for pastors. He's spoken a lot of pastorals, pastoral um, meetings and uh, the kinds of stuff you, I find very helpful, but he's, he is just the local pastor. 
there's no intent in becoming a kind of a celebrity figure. He's just doing faithful work and he's sharing with other pastors just the kinds of lessons he's learned being a faithful local pastor mm-hmm. in one church. And I know circumstances can move people around, but a guy like Brian is really helpful because I find that, uh, and I've seen this from experience, that for a pastor to begin to establish himself and to begin to incorporate a kind of a, a vision or you know proposal for how things are going to look in the future, you need at least three years to begin to situate yourself and what you, especially if you're out of fresh out of seminary, there's so much that you need to learn and, you, and so many things that you need to unlearn in some ways. But uh, guys like Brian have been uh, really helpful. The um, one of the groups that I find very helpful, as well as the Center for Pastor Theologians that I've done some, um, I've been uh, interacting with in the last uh, few months. Uh, Peter Lighthart, of course, has written a lot on pastoral theology. Uh, my co-author Rich Lusk is a pastor that I deeply admire. Um, somebody that I yeah. try to, I look up to very often. So these are a few voices uh, that I think have really influenced me. How about you in the uh, in the Anglican tradition? I'd be curious if there are any any voices that you have learned from uh, that maybe because of my exclusivity in my Presbyterianism, I'm completely unaware. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll name a, a, an Anglican person here in a second, but you speaking of Brian Croft. He, uh, I, if he's at the same church, it's interesting that you bring him up. He was in Louisville, Kentucky, the same time we were there. I wouldn't call his church rural, but it is in a um, a little bit of a, a rough neighborhood in Louisville. And your description of it is exactly right. It's a very modest, humble church building. But as you go in there, you are really are mm-hmm. you sense the fact that this is a flock that loves their shepherd and vice versa. But the person always comes to my mind. Uh, I, I've mm-hmm. talked to him, uh, talked about him before with you is Brian Payne, who's the pastor at First Baptist Fisherville, which is in Louisville, mm-hmm. Kentucky. I worked for Brian for yeah. three years, and uh, the biggest lesson I learned from him was don't despise the day of small beginnings. He uh, he came to a church that's now, you know, largely humanly speaking, grown very much because of of his uh, gifting and so forth, but. I'll never forget when, when we first went to the church, um, he always stopped us to pray. He has, you know, you always talk about having a ministry of prayer, but he really did build a ministry on begging for God's mercy. I mean, hours and hours and hours. I think we probably spent uh, more time praying together than anything else. And then a second thing, which is uh, a really Schaeferian point. If you're reading biography of Francis Schaefer, you know that when he was a pastor in St. Louis, he invested a lot of his energy in children's ministry. And Brian out of his way to make sure uh, that the the kids were catechized and specifically uh, kids who had come who didn't have, uh, either didn't have believing parents or were missing a mother or a father. He really made sure that when they came to church, they weren't just getting a juice box and some crackers and sent out the door, um, but that they were uh, being fed and he viewed them as as part of the flock. And so anyways, the, anytime I think about influences in ministry and so forth, I worked for Brian for three years, but it was early in my ministry. And there were three very, very formative years because I saw that, you know, the fruit is connected with the seed and that if your seed is 
program driven, if your seed is I'm going to win people based on a flashy personality or whatever, that's going to be your fruit. It's going to be artificial fruit. Uh, but in Brian, I saw someone, so this was, you know, 12 or 13 years ago, um, plant the seeds of uh, prayer and small acts of faithfulness and uh, the fruit at that church, I think, would uh, would bear that out. In terms of Anglicans, um, you know, it's funny, Brian, connected again to Brian. Brian uh, did his PhD largely on the work and kind of, I don't think he was supervised by Graham Goldsworthy, but was uh, Goldsworthy was on his committee, I believe. And Graham Goldsworthy is a Sydney Anglican. And, um, you know, I've moved around denominations some, but basically since about 13 years ago, I've always kind of largely thought of myself as uh, a, a Sydney Anglican, you know, broadly reformational. Um, they have kind of a particular quirk of, of, of ministry. As a matter of fact, the, the church we were at before the current one where we are uh, was overseen by the Bishop of Sydney, uh, Peter Jensen, for a time. So I, you know, I, think of, I think of some of those guys, uh, uh, Peter Jensen's brother, Philip. As a matter of fact, I uh, used to listen to Philip Jensen. If anybody here wants to become a better preacher, when Philip Jensen was young in the ministry, he was a chaplain at a college in Australia, and he gave some of the best evangelistic talks. This is the 1970s, 1980s. They're all recorded. Um, and just listening to those sermons, which he would pause in the middle, ask for questions, and would move from exposition to application. Um, uh, Philip Jensen, you know, Graham Goldzer, the people like that were, were really formative to me and and remain so. Yuri, uh, what advice would you have for someone who is feeling maybe burnt out in ministry? Perhaps they haven't been in ministry long, but they are already feeling burnt out. This is a, a big theme in your uh, in your doctoral work, but I also know you're just a good friend. I've called you and I've felt burnt out. What advice would you give them to stay the course? Well, first and foremost, I think we need to change expectations of what the ministry is. And sometimes experience itself will force you to change your expectations. But I think a lot of pastors have a kind of vision they want to see implemented very quick. And when it doesn't happen, they enter into kind of panic mode. And a lot of these guys end up depressed and uh, suffering quite a bit. And as a result, the wife, who sometimes lives vicariously through her husband's suffering, enters into that suffering. And if you have two suffering spouses, you're, you're setting yourself up for some serious damage. And I think the first thing I would do is look for an advocate. If I am burned out in ministry, wherever whatever stage of life I'm in, I need to find an advocate that understands what I'm going through. And I hope that person finds an advocate in the session or in their leadership or whatever government model they have. But that's the kind of conversation that a lot of pastors don't want to have because as soon as they communicate these things, their first fear is they're going to lose their job. And so there is a, a need for a cultural change in the, uh, the culture of pastoral life that has not changed in a long time. And so it's very rare for a session member or somebody in the leadership to approach the senior pastor, let's say, and say, how are you doing? What's life like? And so that culture needs to be established so that environment can be one where the pastor can speak freely. Um, I, do, I do follow my professor, uh, Steve Childers, and his advice that 
pastor ought not to confide in church members when it comes to his own struggles. You're dealing with two very different worlds. And as I mentioned in that interview, that's not something that people are generally prepared to deal with. And so one of my calls is always to find pastors. Uh, this, this was my experience too, Dustin, when I was taking classes at RTS with other pastors. It almost became like a therapy session. I mean, we, we cried together. And we're not talking about kids in their 20s. You know, These are guys who have been in pastoral ministry for 20 plus years. We cried together sharing experiences. Uh, we hugged each other. We shared the uh, testimonies of our pain. And these were deeply theological classes, but these were classes that were specified for people who have experience in pastoral ministry. And so pastors need to have other pastors that they can call to in times of uh, turmoil, which they will inevitably come to. And these voices need to be there. But I think that culture needs to change. If I were to have a conversation with a session, I would say, how aware are you of your pastor's family life? How aware are you of how much time he spends at the office? How aware are you how much time he spends learning, reading books, uh, taking a day off? Have you, do you, are you aware if he took a vacation last year? And if not, you know, if you're not aware of any of these things or one or two of these things, I think leadership in general and sessions in the Presbyterian style need to be, or need to be just aware that there is, there are cultural issues in the church that if the pastor is not being, not being, um, if he's not being shepherded by someone else, he will likely pastorally perish. And when a shepherd begins to go in that downward pattern, what you see throughout history, and I see this often as I'm reading a Calvin's Company of Pastors, you see that when a pastor is weak, when a shepherd is weak or um, depressed or whatever he might be going through, what happens is that translates also into his shepherding life in the church. And so a weak pastor, a depressed pastor, a burnout pastor will produce burnout people, will produce weak people. And so there's a real need for shepherds to be self-aware of their role in a congregation. Because as I said before, a congregation ends up looking like their pastor for good or ill. And uh, that's why I think pastors need to be really, really self-aware of where they are, not just um, in their ministries, but also psychologically. And a lot of pastors sort of prefer to die in silence than to share these things. That's a sobering word. The last question I have is about books. I will answer first so that I can give you the last word. The, the last word. In terms of books, the two that immediately come to mind uh, one is The Work of the Pastor by William Still, which is uh, probably, it's such a short book. I've read it, you know, maybe half a dozen times or something, uh, but always punchy and powerful. And then a more recent book is, and I'm interested if you've read this yet, Love Big, Be Well by Wynn Collier. Have you read that, Yuri? I have not. That's not the book I'm familiar with, but that sounds very, uh, very intriguing. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a fictional uh, letters uh, that uh, a pastor writes to a church from the church calling him stage, and then he continues writing the letters 
on into his ministry. Those are my two book recommendations. Yuri, if you'll give us a couple book recommendations and then any final words you have, uh, you can close us out. Yeah, well, thank you, Dustin. Good to chat with your brother. Oh, there's I have a ton of books that I, I keep in mind. Um, I don't know to pronounce his name uh, well, but he's a, a Lutheran author, uh, Harold uh, Sankbale, I think, or Sankbeal. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's come out recently by Lexham Press, and it's called The Care of Souls. Very rich with um, that kind of you know Lutheran piety that is really foreign in our culture. Uh, the Care of Souls is a really helpful book because it it speaks from a, a an experience that's confessional, and I think that really shapes pastoral life. Um, I also think that um, uh, I'm trying to think what the title um, oh the pastor is minor prophet. That's what I, it's by Craig Barnes. Very helpful, very fruitful in terms of dealing with the text and the subtext of the ministry overall, the things that the pastor, uh, that the people see, and then the things that are underneath, the kind of work that the pastor needs to do behind the scenes uh, to add credence and validity to things he does in public. Very, very fruitful work. I think uh, there's a, a couple of other ones that I, I can't recall right now, but I've read quite a few the last few week, uh, few uh, months. But those are two that I think are beneficial. And then beyond that, of course, I just say uh, Five Smooth Stones or anything by Eugene Peterson, Pastoral Ministry, is just a, a treasure and it will challenge you and it will hit you. It will do all sorts of things to your soul with the hopes that by the end you'll feel alive again to do pastoral ministry anew and to renew your life uh, as a minister. Mm. Well said. A good note upon which to end. Yuri Brito is the pastor at Providence Church in Pensacola, Florida. Yuri, thanks for talking with me, man. Hey, Dustin, my absolute pleasure, my friend. Mm-hmm.